0: Rachel Berger is one of Australia's favourite stand-up comedians and raconteurs, a woman of remarkable insight and depth. She's loud, she's brash, she takes no prisoners. Child of Holocaust survivors, single for most of her life, no children, and she now calls the bushlands of Tasmania home, but only after fast and reliable internet connection was guaranteed. There are no cows too sacred for this Berger. Her road to the stage has been anything but linear, just the way we like it. This is her story.
1: I'm giving you permission to start with the questions. Thank you.
0: I'm Um, I'm, I'm delighted. Okay.
1: Hello, beautiful soul. How's COVID been treating you? I'm telling you, I haven't got any estrogen left. I'm cranky and I'm angry all the time. Uh, How COVID's been, look, I'm in Tasmania. I'm in the middle of 70 acres of bush on my own. It's like three city blocks. So COVID is not really relevant in my life. Where it's relevant in my life is that I haven't been able to go to the mainland um, and see my friends. So I've missed engaging with my friends a lot. And Zoom doesn't really do it for me. It's not the same, but I'm okay. Look, people are really suffering. I'm good.
0: You know, it's funny that you say that because I just heard an interview very recently, um, with the former U S surgeon general, his name is Vivek Murthy. And he was talking about, he's written a book about loneliness But he was talking about, particularly during COVID, that it's not about just not having friendships around, it's not experiencing friendships. And he made that distinction, which I thought was pretty beautiful and very nuanced. If It's it's not just a matter of not seeing people. If we're not sharing with people, if we're not commiserating with people, if we're not lamenting, if we're not telling them how hard our day is, how crap our life is, how wonderful the sunshine is, we're not actually experiencing friendship. And the natural corollary of that is loneliness. So how do you negotiate loneliness when you're on 70 acres? How, how, many, how big is 70 acres?
1: Like three city blocks, three or four city blocks.
0: Right. It's just you and three city blocks. Mm-hmm. So how are, how are you faring during this pretty Well, the thing about comedians. Difficult comedians,
1: time. Well, most comedians are introverts anyway. So I'm happy to be alone because I'm in my head a lot. So, Most
0: podcasters are introverts as well. That's right. We that's have something
1: right. in common. But there is an intimacy between the voice. You know, the thing about podcasting is that the listener is listening as if they're in that room alone with that person. That's why I've always liked radio, same reason. Yeah, me too. Uh, but I think that, um, uh, look, I totally agree with, the, with Vivek that uh, we need, you know, we need to engage because it's not just having a conversation uh, it's it's about sharing all the things that are, are in our daily lives. And if there is no daily life other than anger and rage and you can't go anywhere, then people aren't sharing that much. Uh, but I don't feel loneliness in the bush at all because I chose to be here. And because the bush and nature, is they're very dynamic. There isn't any, I was in there this morning cutting up wood. I'll go back this afternoon and things will be different. There'll be different insects, different birds, different, you know, I would have cleaned up a whole area and made it just because I'm making trails into it. It's feral bush. It's not paddocks. It's no cows or shit. It's absolute feral bush. You can't walk through it. So I'm making trails. So I can make a trail and sweep it up and clean it in my kind of, you know, OCD, anal retentive way. I'll go the next day, trees fall exactly where I cleaned. So I love the fact (laughs) that I'm not in control. I love the fact that um, it's dynamic and it's real and it represents to me the the kind of uh, basic um, uh, life force that I think we often have forgotten or are beginning to lose in our controlled lives. The one good thing about COVID, there's been nothing good about it, but if anything, it's taught us that we are not in control, that all the cockamamie insurances and the life insurance and the work insurance and all the other, it means nothing and it's like the Buddhists say, you know, you actually have no control, really, of our lives. You have to live each day, one day at a time. You can plan ahead. You can, you can, you know, arrange for your children to be in good schools. But really, and it reminds me of my mother during the Holocaust. You know, she said the Nazis turned up and in one day you have nothing and you're in a ghetto. And it's the same thing. In one day there is nothing and people can't leave the house. So I think it's a good reminder to remind us that we are not in control, that it doesn't matter how many life insurances or how many, how many objects of control you think you have or security, they don't really exist.
0: What was the personal legacy? We've just mentioned your mum and she, was, she, she survived the Holocaust. What, what was the personal legacy of being a child of Holocaust survivors? How did that impact? Because I know that your comedy is very much, um, was very much formed in a home where there'd been so much darkness and so much sadness. Your parents were eternal optimists, but you you use comedy to bring levity to the household. So, what what is the personal legacy of, of of growing up in a home where there had been so much darkness, but there were parents that wanted desperately to push through that?
1: It's a, it's a question that has almost three prongs. One is that my parents were optimistic and they were resilient and they survived, and so I learned from that. But there was a high cost, like all children that are survivors of trauma, regardless of what that trauma is, uh, you carry the burden of their trauma, particularly from the Second World War, because they never had conflict resolution. They didn't have the anger management. They, you know, My father had an arm blown off and there was no rehabilitation. He just had to get on and learn how to live a life with one arm. So I learned about resilience and I learned about triumph. But the cost was that I had parents who were very broken and were unable to parent. So I developed a highly vigilant sense, like all children that are traumatised, to be aware of what state of mind they were in, what mood were they in when I came home from school, uh, so that I could prepare myself for whatever the situation was because they were hysterical people. They were nervous. They were anxious. Understandably, they would get angry very easily. They were paranoid. So, I guess it gave me the skill of reading another person in order to protect myself so that I wouldn't be vulnerable to whatever it was that was coming at me when I got home. They weren't physically abusive, but they certainly were were mentally and emotionally abusive, um, because
0: and of what, you know it's it's also I was just going to say that it's also that notion of children who have lived with trauma have this hypervigilance that you allude to. Yeah. They can read a room before they've ever stepped into the room. They know where there's going to be an argument. They know where there's going to be a confrontation. They know when there's going to be something dramatic that's about to happen. It's a sixth sense. It's totally innate. You know it before you even experience it.
1: It's actually chemistry because it's it's not so much a sixth sense, but as a child you're so, you're so uh, alert because you're protecting yourself. That you start producing cortisol and adrenaline and noradrenaline at a very early age. So what happens is, if you're going into a situation where you think it could be taxing, or or your your parents are having a fight, the neural pathway is already operating. So it it really is chemical. It's in your body. I mean, I've just I've just been given the name of a book that talks about trauma being kept in your body, and it is. In your body so it's not so much a sixth sense it's just that you're a, 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 you, all the chemicals just come on they switch on as soon as you come into a situation because you've got to survive because all the things that a normal child has the love the, the kind of reliability on the older person isn't there when people are traumatized it can't be there because these people are screwed up in so many ways we don't even understand so from that point of view yes it was a legacy I had to I wasn't a funny child I wasn't funny at school. I was an introvert. I was shy. English was my second language because I was born in Israel. So I was the, the, the kind of awkward uh, kid whose parents had a milk bar. And um, I didn't really ever fit in, but it made me an observer. So I think the three prongs were from that, the legacy of that is one, that I have a hypervigilance to, to it, well, I mean, it's getting better because I've had a lot of psychoanalysis. But it doesn't ever go away. <laughs> Haven't we all? Yeah, Haven't but we all? it doesn't go away. I mean, one of the reasons that I am in the bush um, is that the bush has become a metaphor for my journey. As I am opening up the dark trails, I'm actually getting to myself because in that process I'm learning that I'm not in control, that there is things bigger than me. But at the end of the day, It's both not reliable because it's nature, but it is reliable because it's constantly and consistently reinvigorating and regenerating itself. And the darkest place that I'm going to um, is actually the most beautiful and the most passionate and the most unruly and the most beautiful. So I figure that's where I'm heading to in my inner world by physically, you know, hand-digging out all these trails. And often, I mean, I'm not the first person to note that physical work or there is often a physical manifestation of what your inner journey is. And I'm just lucky that I landed here. I didn't plan it, but I've certainly been a hard journey. And in these five years, my brother has died. My mother has died. I have no more family. So it's both the acceptance of the fact that I am this family that was both mutilating and also um, a great teacher is gone. And so who am I now in the world? You know,
0: that's what I wanted to ask you as well because since you and I last spoke, you've had this really heartbreaking loss, the loss of your beloved mum and tragically the loss of your brother. What's that brought into sharper focus for you? Uh,
1: I also lost, very importantly, two really good girlfriends that I'd speak to every week. Oh, so, I'm uh, so sorry. That's how it's life. You know, but it's sad because these, you know, you know what your girlfriends, your girlfriends are the people you talk to all the time. You know, what it's brought, it's made me realize that, um, that uh, as my father always said to me, that you have to live life every day. And in fact, my mother, when I would speak to my mother, when I researched my one woman show, Hold the Pickle, and I interviewed my mother uh, about the actual experience when they were in hiding, um, And she told me that they had hidden, you know, the whole story is that he hit for 13 months under seven stairs in a basement of a building. And I was gobsmacked by this. And I said, How did you do this? Like, how did you do it? 13 months. And she said, I'll never forget it, one day at a time.
0: And probably one hour at a time.
1: Yeah. But so so that that has come in for me in these last few years, you know, often one day at a time, one hour. And and even when I'm working in the bush. When I first got here, I would look at these humongous trees and crap and just stuff that's just impossible. You you just don't know physically how you're going to make a sway through it. It is impenetrable. You can't walk through it. And if you're walking through it, there are snakes. There, I have deer on my property. I didn't even know there were deer in Tasmania. There's deer there. And I work with a guy. I've got like this man Friday that comes every few weeks to help me. And he always says, just start. And keep going till you finish. And that, that <laughs> and I've never been like that. Part of the skill of being a comedian is that you're on stage, you're thinking what you're gonna say, you're thinking what you've just said, you're noticing, you're always you're working on different levels, probably like you are now. There's different levels. What am I saying? What am I gonna say? Where is this going? I can't do that. You've got a bit of bush in front of me that could kill you because there's a snake or a tree could fall. You just you just go do what's in front of you. And so I think the last five years I've been on this land it has been about learning to to take one day at a time, and also to my parent, my mother, and my brother were very angry when they died. So um for different reasons, and so it taught me a lot about you know how, as a child. In fact, most of my life, until a few years ago, I I was aware of that anger, and I was yeah, I was a victim of it, and an observer of it, and also myself had. Um, not the same kind of anger, but certainly there was a low-level rage about a lot of things. I would so sort of overreact to things, and so watching them sick and dying and being so angry made me think, you got to let go of all this shit. Just let go; it's not worth it. It made their deaths much worse. And they weren't talking to each other. And my brother, they was my brother was so angry with my mother that even when he was dying, he refused to talk to her. I mean, how stupid is that? Oh,
0: I was the that, one that. That's had- really tragic. It's that's really ridiculous. tragic, ridiculous.
1: And this is a highly intelligent man who was a psychologist. Brilliant. Brilliant mind. But wait,
0: can I ask you, I mean, I don't want to pry, but can I ask That's you, were fine. they angry about their imminent demise or no, was there anger? No, no,
1: no. They were angry. My mother was angry because because she was dying and she could she wanted to die and she wasn't dying quick enough when she was 97. And and she um and I think a lot of it was the frustration of not being controlled. She wasn't demented at all. And yet she had physically her body was fully gone. My brother was just angry that that, you know, he had a terrible cancer and he couldn't control it and he was just angry at the world and, you know, neither of them could find any, any good anywhere. It was very sad, very, very sad. And I was, it, with each of them I spent a lot of time and I kept saying, but can you not, you know, like your family's here and what?" No, nah, just anger, anger, anger. And the thing is because I was the only family member, my brother didn't show this to his wife or his kids just to me. And my mother had right. no one else to show it to anyway, so, right. so I got the word. So you know, it, look, it, it was it was a privilege to be with them. It was sad. It was incredibly like I'm still exhausted. My mother only died in January. Um, right. It's not the grief that's exhausting. It's just 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 the, just the having spent the last few months of her life going from Tasmania to Queensland and 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 trying to talk to this person who's not demented, who's had the most extra- incredible woman, shit mother. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which I told her on the news, but she acknowledged it. She always said I did the best I could and she did. She did the best she could. But the best.
0: Yeah, I've heard a few, a few of the closest people to me say that as well. And, you know, you, yeah. you, you try to find generosity and compassion to let them believe that because to rob them of being able to at least feel that they've done their best. Yeah, absolutely. Is robbing them of their sense of, of worth on the planet. Absolutely. But you have to find quite a lot of generosity to be able to say that to someone who you feel has profoundly let you down, Yeah. let's say in a parenting capacity.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But you you, can't, you, you cannot also deny their reality. They did do the best they, they could. Um, but when you're the kid on the receiving end of a mother who's hopeless and, in fact, doesn't even know how to manifest the, the kind of everyday things of being there for you, it's pretty hard, particularly when you're that kid who's always there for her right up until her dying breath. And when you ask me about survivors, the thing about survivors and particularly my mother, what people often don't realise about survivors is that survivors survive. So for my mother, I was simply a a conduit to getting what she needed. She actually did not see me. She couldn't have told you what my favourite colour was. She couldn't have told you what my favourite flowers were. She had no idea. She didn't care. She acted out like she cared, but she didn't really. So particularly when my father died 30 years ago, I became the only person that she could rely on and she knew that I would do whatever needed to be done. As she was dying and she realised there was nothing more to be done, she couldn't give a shit. She was just awful. So I would take her hand and she'd pull it away. And you say to her, wow. and I'd say to her, do you understand what you're doing? Do you?" And she'd say, I just want to die. So the, the bad thing was that it was sad. And really heartbreaking for me. But at the same time, everything I had ever believed and wasn't able to articulate was there in front of me. She actually, I I meant I was just a conduit. It's not that she was brutal or big, but she just, she actually didn't care enough. She couldn't because she'd lost everyone she loved in the war. You know, I mean, that is the point. There's no point saying to her to be different. This is what happens when there's war. This is what happens when people are abused. Their bits of them are broken and they can't be fixed. All I can do and anyone like me can do, and a lot of people aren't able to do it, but all you can try to do is to fix the bits yourself. It's not going to be the same because the scars are there and the scar is always the scar. Underneath, underneath the healing, the scar is there. So the scars are always there. All you can do is say, okay, that's my scar. Look at this pussy wound. And they say, okay, it's there, but I'll keep going. And hopefully the people you you learn to love and be loved by people who, you know, also say, yeah, look at my pussy wound. I've got a pussy wound too. You know, isn't it vile? Um, but that's a journey. It's a journey to that. And, and you know, I think that I, I absolutely adored my parents, which was a, a terrible thing because it meant that I was always pulled between loving them, wanting to fix them, and I couldn't fix. I couldn't fix it. Nothing in the world would let me fix how they were. But also, I wouldn't. I think that a lot of my stamina and resilience and my strength certainly comes from my parents. Absolutely.
0: But it always goes hand in hand. You know that yeah. there's the brokenness and there's the legacy of being yeah. broken because your parents didn't show up in a way that was uh, nourishing and meaningful and supportive. And yet, the byproduct of that is a community of people who are resilient and strong and actually able to withstand shit you know it's it's funny because my upbringing was less than uh, let's say euphoric but i know that that i wouldn't be the person that i am today in the absence of that so there is an incredible gratitude from that lacking does that does that resonate with you cuz cuz i feel yes, that way does. every day
1: it does because it it sort of makes you want to fill in the gaps or you know, change the way you are so that you're not a product of the the broken bits but that you've put all the good bits together. But it's actually very hard to, I think, to actually, you can have the psychotherapy, you can discuss it, you can get it all together in your head. But if you haven't been, for example, if you haven't been properly mothered, um, then it's very hard to mother yourself. How did you mother when nobody said you go to bed, you're tired? So I have worked and kept working, and I'm a total workaholic. I never stop, but I've kept working until I literally have dropped asleep on the floor in front of me, in my clothes gone, I've got to lie down now because I didn't have enough sort of self-care to know when to stop because if my mother saw me as a commodity and a conduit, how else can I see myself? So this body, this brain, is totally, for many years, was totally a commodity. I got up on stage, I did my hair, I did my nails, I looked great, whatever, because I was this commodity. It wasn't really about how I felt, what it was just, and a lot of women, particularly in these last 50 years, of women of my generation are the same. You just keep doing and doing and doing and doing and doing because the proof of your identity, of your worth, is in what you produce. It doesn't matter whether you produce children or whether you produce work or whether you make a film, but just being isn't enough. And I think slowly as women, you know, getting very sick and, you know, and understanding they need more, that that's changing. But certainly I think as a stand-up comedian that became very relevant to me, which is why at, at a certain point, I mean, I'm still working and performing, but I backed off because I was just a machine getting up on stage, going back to the hotel, going on another flight, you know. I, I mean, I would do things like three gigs in two states in one day. That's a machine. You just get up on the stage, you get an aeroplane, you get on stage, you go blah, 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 you go home. What, where am I in that? I forgot I had a body. And so, what happened in 2000, I think, I don't know, I think it was after we spoke in 2012 um, or 13, had I been on the boat? Yes, I had because I'd been talking about that Vietnam. That what happened there in, in hindsight, what I realized happened on the boat was for the first time in about 20 years, I began to feel things not to do with work, not to do with applause, not to do with it, but to do with feeling. So being on a boat, it was the elements. you know, All of a sudden I had to be aware of the tide and the wind and that the boat was moving. And I remember distinctly, distinctly one day being in the shower, coming out, being half dressed it was you know at night and I went out onto the deck and it was this searing wind it's like a really arctic wind came on and I had hardly nothing on I had a towel and it almost kind of sort of bit into me and I just stood there because I thought I'm I'm feeling I'm feeling this I'm feeling it I hadn't felt for a long time because the body so, was just a machine
0: so was work the ultimate distractor for you, totally. because you, you've, you've spoken about your comedy career as being your lover. I That's mean, right. it's it's been your everything, That's your right. absolute everything.
1: That's right, and it was for a long time, everything.
0: But I, but I think that notion of actually um, standing still at a certain juncture and then the feelings come and they come in waves and they come relentlessly and you are not necessarily equipped to cope with that kind of rush of feeling because I really relate to this concept of being on this incredible treadmill. But you know, it's funny. I have children and I have felt that you spoke about how do you look after yourself when you haven't been mothered. I feel that having children myself, I'm not suggesting that's anyone else's path. I'm just saying personally having children was redemptive for me Mm -hmm. because whilst I didn't feel incredibly parented, I was then in a position to parent and to love the inner child of my children and in some ways it was very healing and very cathartic for me. Yeah, it's also terrifying, and it's very confronting because it's also an incredible reminder of what you didn't have. And you know, when you're reading the umpteenth book to your kid and realize I never had a book read to me, I was never taken to a park, I never had uh, th- there was so much absence of warmth and 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 kindness. And I mean, those were the circumstances. And I keep coming back to what you said: they did their very best, yep. but their very best was very limited because yep. of other circumstances. Yep. So it's just interesting because I know that mothering has given me that um, healing, not completely, but in a lot of ways. And when you, I mean, you're, you're a nurturer. You might not be a biological mother, but you mother and you nurture lots of people. So many comedians in your world have said that about you. That's something that's so viscerally strong about you as a personality and as a character. You love, you give, you advise, you mentor, you guide. Um I wonder if that's been healing for you. Uh,
1: totally, loving and caring
0: about other people.
1: Absolutely. Loving and caring about other people has been really healing. Every single performance was loving and caring. But, but in the same way my mother was loving and caring, I did not think about go to bed now. Okay, you've done the gig. So, for example, when I did Hold the Pickle and a lot of Holocaust survivors and their children and grandchildren were in the audience, most nights, this is at the Victorian Arts Centre at the Fairfax Theatre, most nights, in fact, I would say every night for the season. Um, I would take my last bow and then people would just come onto the stage and I then talked for another two hours to people, hour and a half, two hours, people telling me their stories, people telling me things they'd never told their children. Um, I wasn't going to walk away from that because I realised that somehow I'd unlocked a door and they were able to, to talk and then they would go home and talk more. And I actually then did some events at the, at the Holocaust Centre where people said, my mother never said a word until after she saw your show. It just unlocked a door. Um, but I locked the door not because I talked about the Holocaust, not because I talked about the bad stuff, well, I talked about the bad stuff, but it was because I did a lot of it in the voice of my child, of my own inner child. I didn't do a child's voice. I'm, I talked like I did now. But the words was that of a child. And the thing about a child, child has no judgment. That's why Anne Frank mm. could write at the top of the door, I still believe all men are good in the Anne Frank Museum because only a child would do that. It's only an adult that says, look, wasn't that a terrible thing to do? That man raped me. Isn't that awful? Children don't do that. They just tell it how it is. So I worked very hard in when I wrote that show to just tell it how it was. So many parents, for the first time, heard what their children must have felt. They'd never heard it before. And I, didn't, I, wasn't, I was nothing but loving towards my parents, but I said my father didn't talk to me for a year because I forgot to give him a phone message. Because during the war, if you didn't give someone a message, you could die. So my father's way of treating me was teaching me, was he didn't talk to me. I didn't exist. Now, I didn't make a judgment on that in the show. I don't know. I just tell it how it is. And you yes. can see people's faces going, how do you do that to a child? How do you just stop talking to a child for 12 months? If you're really broken and damaged, yes, you can do that. But I wonder, in fact, not I wonder, I know that there are many manifestations of that there's a lot of abuse within the Jewish community in that Holocaust survivor community because that's how they were treated by the Nazis. How can they not yeah. treat that, you know, their lessons to be, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. um, I think, you know, that certainly your your motherhood and your children are redemptive because it is it is like people, like me, for me at the moment, this bush is totally, it's like therapy bush. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Only you could say therapy bush, but you know what? It kind of works. I get it. Well, I say okay, well, people come over bush. and stay at Burger's Bush, and they go, "That's disgusting. Are you crazy?" It's <laughs> therapy bush. It's, that's <laughs> what it's called. It's not a forest bush, but I call it Burger's <laughs> Bush. It's a lovely bit of
0: Oh my goodness! I really could do with some time out in Burger's Bush. But listen, well, but I, I want to ask thing
1: you: is you can go for a walk. And not and, and feel like you're lost, but you're not because you're still at my place. That's what I always say to people. Go for a walk. I'll find you. Worst comes to worst. You know, yell and I'll find you. I you guarantee like, you'll find me. I, I will.
0: Because I could get lost in my house and it's not that big. Well, you I just, get, yeah. you get lost, Ge- Geographic dyslexia. <laughs>
1: That's okay.
0: <laughs> you'll find me.
1: I'll find um, you.
0: You'll find me. I want to, look, comedy's changed a lot, right, because the world's changed a lot. And what I wanted to ask you, is it scary or daunting, I I think I'm projecting my own feelings of anxiety here, but is it scary to do stand-up in a world now where social media pervades and every moment can be catalogued and critiqued by every single person on the planet? It's a very different landscape. How does that
1: affect you? Uh, It doesn't really affect me because you might have noticed I never did a lot of television. I did appearances, but I never did a lot of television because I was too risky because I said, thing, I said it how it was. If you think about most comedians on Australian television, um, and these are my colleagues and I love them and they're brilliant and they make me laugh, but generally they will talk about being lonely, being single, their children, they're, they're angry, they can't get a date. It's terribly 1980s. It's way behind. It's just so, it's, it's just playing that. Caricature archetype of Joan Rivers and Phyllis Diller, who by the way are both of them are my heroes. I love them. But um, I think it is it, the, the, for women in particular, there is no one like a Samantha B here. I've been, I have been during the 90s trying to get a show like Samantha B show. I went to every network and they were oh, a woman doing political satire, don't be ridiculous. One guy at the Nine Network, who since died, said to me, and I would Things had been different. If we were in the Me Too you know, era, I would have done something about it. He, he looked at me and I, he knew my work. He knew the kind of material I did. Um, and he just said, smart mouth, big tits, nah, walk away. They will. So I didn't do and never have done a lot of TV because I can't do it. I, I can't do, you know, they'll say to me, don't, don't do that. But like what happened? I'm one of the only people to be censored off Australian television. And you know why? Because I said about John Howard that maybe when they circumcised him, they threw away the wrong piece. 2,000 people at the (laughs) Palais Theatre pissed themselves laughing and the comedy festival director just edited it out. Um, But do you think, but
0: Rachel, is that that an Australian thing where there's no appetite for risk? Because there are much edgier comedians overseas. I, I mean, the truth of the matter is that there is, we're living in a bit of a censor culture and a bit of a cancel culture, things that, you know, that Ricky Gervais has spoken about and been very livid about. I also want to know what you think about that because we live, I I am such an voracious um, consumer of comedy. It's like my life force. I'm not comedic but I adore oh. it. It is such a brilliant outlet to cackle oh. and laugh and just lose oh. yourself with funny stuff. And I would also, I mean, we're all nuanced, right? We're not, we're not linear. We're all mm-hmm. very different and we have different components to us. So I also feel like is comedy really the realm of political correctness? I, I think I'm a total civil libertarian but I've never expected to go to a comedy show and have it perfectly politically correct um, and I just don't know what the impact of that is having on, on comedy, on sort of the, this free ability to just be funny at any cost there's things are tempered now you can't just say whatever you want to say no,
1: that's why most that's... Com- comedy is crap most stand-up comedy particularly what you see on television is crap because they've all been you know deflowered and denuded and whatever the word is they've just they can't you, you know they I mean my heroes were people like um uh, Bill Hicks or Will Durst. I mean, these are people you don't even, well, you know, Bill Hicks died a while ago. But these people were brilliant because they said it how it was. You never saw them much on television in America either. Bill Hicks is much loved, you know, like adored hero of comedy. And there's, there was a whole documentary made about how Letterman stopped him from coming on Letterman Show because Hicks wouldn't allow them to see his script before, which they they absolutely, you know, you have to see Letterman, people want to see your script. I would never allow anybody to see my stand-up. The whole point of stand-up comedy or comedy is that it, it gives you the darker side. Traditionally there were, the, you know, the, 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 the palace clown, the harlequin, all those characters in, in 19th century, those cabaret uh, artists, they were there to show the underbelly of royalty. They were there to expose the flaws and they were allowed to do that. And there's even a whole art form um, called, um, I'll think of it in a minute, in France where la bouffe, and la bouffe comes like from the word buffon, uh, not the hair, but buffon is a buffon. Um, But once a year in France in the the 19th century or even 18th century, all the carnival folk, all the kind of weird carnival folk and gypsies that lived out of the city would would come and do a show for the gentry. And these were people that were that were disabled, you know, they had hunched backs, they had legs missing, they were strange people, some of them were circus performers, and they would sing and they would perform. And so this whole art form has come from that called perform, where you kind of become this other broken, physically broken creature, but are really resilient in your performance. But the point of these people, they were given money and they were given food that would last them several months. And they were allowed, because they were so broken and deformed and not like the rest of us pure human beings, they were able to say whatever they wanted about the gentry and about the royalty. So stand-up comedy has always been a place, or comedy has always been a place where you can show the darker side. The minute you begin to, to, to sanitise that, that's not comedy anymore. That's just making jokes. You know, you've got to be able to say it how it is. And America has in, in the US there are some brilliant satirists, but you very rarely see them on television because Americans don't do irony very well. You know, they're just irony isn't a big thing in America. Um, and a lot of, the time, I mean Will Durst, who's a brilliant comedian who's, you know, been in his sixties now, been working for years. He tells this wonderful line where, you know, he'd he'd be traveling, he'd do the Edinburgh Festival, he'd go back to San Francisco and people would say to him, Where have you been? He said, Oh, I've been working in Europe, I think, oh, Europe, great country, love to go there, you know, no idea. So I think, I'm not saying all Americans are like that, but I think there is that, yeah, well, we can see what's happening with Trump. I think that there is the kind of educated, you know, aware as there is in Australia. Same thing, educated, aware, want to hear the truth, want to know want to know the dark side of, of politics, but then there are people who want the status quo because they either don't have the time, the inclination, or the, you know, the, the kind of um, desire to know more. But I, I don't like the way that, I, don't, I mean, I, I, I've, I've done, I've continued working live because when I'm live, nobody can stop me from saying anything. And I have to say in 32, 33 years of working live, I've said the most amazing thing, nobody has ever complained. I've never had a complaint, ever. Because it's also in the way, I don't do it from a place of I know better. I'm just saying this is how I see it. Do you know what I mean? This is my lens. Look but, through
0: my lens. But do you think that people that turn up to a comedy gig are signing up to that anyway? They're basically saying, "We're here, and we have an appetite for risk, and we have an appetite for content that is true, and confrontational, and impactful, and therefore there won't be any recourse because we've we we're, we're here for the show." Whereas, well, I po- think I think maybe less, Whereas possibly with television, uh, yeah, there I- is an expectation of this kind of homogenous. Pasteurised, sanitised, um, overly curated version of well, what's there is. I mean, there, acceptable.
1: Yeah, I mean the Melbourne Comedy Festival when they used to do their gala, it, it, you would. When I first did the Comedy Festival galas, you know there might be twenty people on for the show that was then edited down, but you had a seven or eight minute spot that might be edited down to five. Now you get a three minute spot, maybe edited to a minute and a half. What do you can? I takes me a minute and a half to say hello. How are you? You know, so and and because, like every other business, they're relying on government funding. They're relying on sponsorship. So, am I gonna am I gonna take the piss out of some company that's you know putting pollutants into the air that may be connected to one of their sponsors? I will, but it'll be edited. So I don't want to put myself in that risk. I don't want my words edited into things that where I don't mean. And I also think, what is the point of having the platform if I don't use it with respect? Uh, I think now people are um, more risk averse. I think they're, you know, they, they. if I say, and I have here, in Ta- because the thing about Tasmania, Tasmania is the whitest place I've ever been in my life. Tasmania is capital W, white. It is like being in the equivalent of the deep south. It's white, 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 white. And so many, Abri- I mean, even me, people think I'm just a little bit too dark. I'm the only Jew in the village. And they think that this, when I talk with my hands, they go, you're so aggressive. And I said to one woman, why do you think I'm aggressive? Because you use your hands all the time. I'm not going to kill you. I'm not stabbing you. I'm just using my hands because I'm talking. I feel like saying, go to New York. Then you'll know what aggressive is. This is not great. They have no idea. They just don't, they don't raise their voice. It's all monotone. It's all very nice. And what happens is that if so often they're like this, then they're lovely, and then they snap and they pull out an axe and say, I'm going to kill you with my axe. They're just nuts. And I've talked about it on stage. I've said to them on stage here, I've said, what is the matter with you people? You're all crazy. And they laugh because they, they are. They actually are because this is a bunch of people on a very small island that killed more Aboriginals than were killed anywhere in the country. Where they're, You don't even see an Aboriginal person on the street. They're here, but you don't them. And it's a, it's, there's this great juxtaposition in Tasmania between extraordinary beauty and, and places where you can just feel there was death. You know, when um, there's names of places, you know, black man hanging and whatever, you know, thunder and, Li- thunder and lightning bay and destruction, you know, avenue, because there were places where there was death and destruction and you know, kind of white supremacy that went everywhere. Um, and so, yeah, it's so here, uh, I think people are taken aback when I say things on stage about them, but, <laughs> but it's also the truth. You reckon? Truth. Yeah, but it's also the truth. And I don't think there's that, that what, why would I put myself in the most tedious situation of putting yourself on stage in front of a group of people um, where you have to own your place and you have to own the fact that they're listening to you and they're giving a time? Why would I do that and bullshit? I'm not saying that I'm always right, but at least it's a place where I can say what I think, given the context, whatever the context is, and, and particularly there's, there's, I mean, suicide has gone up six times in Australia since covid In Tasmania, domestic violence and sexual abuse is higher than it's been in years, and it's high anyway. I'm not not going to talk about that, you know, because why would I not talk about it? For me, I'm not saying, yes, I could talk about idiots that work in health food shops, and I have, and make me feel guilty because I'm probably wearing a nylon gusset. I can talk about that. But I can also (laughs) talk about the fact that why are you not looking at these people, these women that are being sexually abused for years and nobody's doing anything? You know, but the government's going to spend money on a new cricket field, whatever it is. But yeah. I'm driven, I guess, because part of being the child of Holocaust survivors is that there is a, a deep wound about betrayal. They were betrayed. The world was betrayed. Anything darker yeah. like that that happens, it's a huge betrayal. I mean, once a human being hits another human being or bestows any pain on another human being, that's betrayal. And so I have a deep sense of I'm not gonna betray my um my place in the world. I'm not gonna lie in order to get a gig. I'm not gonna I mean, I'm driven to do these things. It's not like it's not like I wake up and think, okay, what's the really bad thing I'm gonna write about? It's just I see it. It's there for me in relief. It's like I have like got a little kind of water diviner that, that takes me to the bad stuff, right about the bad stuff. You know, and it's being said of my work. I look at the things that other people choose to look away from because I'm not scared. What are they going to take It's like my mother used to say to me, my mother would say, what are they going to take away? What are they going to take away from me? What can they take away? They can never take away my creativity. They can't take away my words. They can't take away, you know, what are they going to take away? I'm just not maybe gonna get the, you know, the big gig that I've wanted to get or whatever. But I saw that even when I got the really big gigs, you had to make too many compromises. If I wanted to do a television show, I would have a lot of constraints, depending on what that show was. But in anything I've wanted to do, they've always said you can't do that. You can't, okay, well I can't do it. Well, I can't. I cannot do some things because I'm not an idiot. We all have to compromise. But if you're going to take away so many things from me that in the end I'm not that person anymore, that I'm I'm just a product, that I'm not even a good product, I'm like the I'm like the diluted version. You know, it's like can, there are people who don't know that garlic comes out of the ground. They just buy garlic that's been squashed in a jar. They think that's garlic. That's not garlic. It's just the illusion of garlic. And when you give them a garlic clove, they go, oh, that's garlic. Yes, that's garlic, you idiot. And have a smell. That really tastes like garlic. So if, if I think if you compromise your work again and again and again and again, this is what I think, then I think in the end you might be successful in one level, but I can't, I just can't, I can't do it. There doesn't seem to be a point for me to do the work I do in anything um, if I can't be at least congruent with what I believe in.
0: But that's that's what is so um, impressive about you, and that is what is so strong about you no, because your authenticity. No,
1: that's why I'm single. That's why I'm single. No, it's not <laughs> why you're single, babe. I'm kidding. I'm kidding, it's, be- I'm kidding,
0: I'm kidding. <laughs> it's because because your authenticity shines, and your Bye. what's so compelling about your comedy shtick is that. It's about the entirety of your experience. Yeah. And when you say, and when we were talking about experience, it's experience of the world. It's not just experience, as you said, about the stuff that, you know, we all have in our lives, the relationships and yeah. the parenting and the this is and the that, the, the, the homogenous stuff that we can all kind of speak about and that there are some similarities. What you talk about is things of social conscience, things of import, things of character, and that's not necessarily easy to weave into a comedy show it's not but you do it and you do it with aplomb and you do it with such uh courage and tenacity and ferocity at times um you are electric on stage and it actually doesn't matter in which context like you could be headlining a a comedic festival but you could also be a keynote speaker and then you just become electrified on on stage where does that come from because we've spoken about a traumatic childhood and we've spoken about not having all the dots um coming together in your life and not all the, the, the soothing words and not all the, the parenting that was required. Where do you get that confidence? Because I can't think of anything worse. I mean, there are levels of worse things and I can't think of anything worse than getting in on a stage. I've done it before, but it instills total dread. And I remember um, when I was working in television and my first my first story went to air and I was sitting next to a friend of mine who's a barrister He said, how the hell can you do this? Do you know, Tammy, that two million people are going to be watching this? And I said to him, no, mate, I am with my guest and there's a camera person and there's a sound recordist and I know them very, very well and it's just an intimate space. So I'm not cognizant of anybody watching this because if I did, I'd actually fall apart. What you do every day by going to court where there's jeopardy, where someone's life is on, you know, where someone's life and liberty is on the line, that's... Overwhelming to me. So let's get back to comedy. How the hell do you get on stage and um, deliver material and have hecklers and try and make people laugh and do it with so much confidence?
1: I didn't. Have, well, thank you, but I didn't have the confidence to start with. <laughs> I mean it. I, well, I didn't have the confidence. To start. I died every week for a year. I did try tryouts at the place called The Last Laugh, and I died every week. Every week I died. I was crap, but. Um, in the same way that you love your children born out of a lack of what you might not have had, driven by things you don't even understand, I what made me, what what gave me the tenacity to keep going when I was really bad was that, one, I knew that I would get better because if you keep doing something for long enough, you get better. It's just I think that I had a, <laughs> I think if you hate yourself, uh, and this has been documented. I think if you hate yourself enough, it doesn't matter how many times you're shit on stage, you just keep thinking, well, I'm going to get better. And I hated myself enough to be shit and be and just be so shit <laughs> for a year until eventually I got good. Um, and then what happened to me, I had a lovely experience. There were three American female comics who were at the last laugh when I did my first tryout, and they were all absolutely brilliant. And one of them, uh, Adrian Tolch, came up to me. She'd seen it. She they were Three of them were up when I did my first try and she came up, she found me backstage and she said, so do you feel really shit? And I said, yes, I do. And she said, that's okay. It'll get better, but it'll be shit for a while. And just, she said the best advice and I give this to newcomers, just put your ego on the shelf for a while. Forget it. You're going to be shit. It's going to be shit. People are going to say you're shit just, but keep going. And I believed her and it worked. I just kept going. But I think the drive I don't think I know this sounds crazy but it and it's not the same for everyone but for me it was never about ego if it was about ego I mean certainly ego gives you the drive from a psychoanalytical point of view it's the ego that gives you the drive but but I didn't continue doing it for ego in the sense that I wanted the adulation or the um I didn't want. I didn't need to be validated by these people. What I wanted to do was connect. What makes me electric, if that's the case, because I can, is that at that moment, in front of whether it's ten or ten thousand people, I love those people. Every bit of um, goodness, love, desire to communicate is what drives me. Whether it's for ten minutes or for that, no, because. At that moment, I am in my purest, the purest self I can be. I'm alone on stage, two hands. I always say to people, two hands, two legs, and a face, a mouth, and and that's it. I don't juggle. I don't sing. I don't have a guitar. And there are a thousand people whose energy is all coming at me, and I have to be able to accept that and then give back. And at that moment, when it's like the water coming into you know coming in and out, the tide coming in and out or the waves rolling in, and there is that exchange between a group of people, it is absolutely uplifting, because at that point, not only for me and for them is there a sense of love in the shape of laughter, but it's absolutely 100 percent proof to me that we are all the same. Because if we're all laughing at the same things at the same time, and I think I've spoke to you about this before, when you look at a group of people that are laughing, they are so vulnerable. They are so available to you. They're next to the thrown. This is a very vulnerable part of the body. They're next to the thrown back. They're open. They're laughing. Their mouths. They are like babies. That's an incredible gift, and it proves to me that all the risk I've taken has been worth it. Because look at what we're doing. It's not me giving them. It's me engaging with them and I'm feeding off them and they're getting, getting from me. And it's, you know, it's and there's proven that laughter creates certain endorphins that go off and make it. So there's a great sense in the room and that's why it's worth it. And so when, this is why when you see people that have been abused, seriously abused, sexually traumatised, who have had no sense of their self-worth, When you see them get up on a stage for five minutes and tell their story and have that love, they're not the same. It's worth years of therapy and it works and it's powerful because they are in control of their story. They're in control of their narrative. They're they're being loved. They're being listened to. They're being acknowledged and they're being loved with, not at. And, I mean, that's why a lot of the work that I'm kind of, Doing now is about that because it's such a non-invasive way of actually healing people. I don't heal them; they heal themselves.
0: But tell me about this work. Why? Why is it such a why? Is why do you feel such a calling? It's not. It's not a usual comedic uh, rite of passage to be helping people who are suffering from abuse or who've, who've gone through these. Grave journeys. Why? Because why I've the seen it work. For you?
1: Because I've seen it work. I've. I did it. I did it. um So, what is the work that you're doing? So, what's happened over the last few years? It turned out that um storytelling became a very big thing, like the Moth in the States. It started in the States and all the story. So, uh, I was asked to do. I'd, I'd done workshops with different groups of people that have been disenfranchised, like homeless youth. Um, uh, survivors of domestic violence in the past like over the 10-15 years people say can you come in and sort of teach some people how to do stand-up comedy and what happened was I had to think about well how do I do that how? so I worked out a process and the best process was to ask people some very basic simple questions um, because remember I didn't start stand-up till I was 32 so I spent several years once I started being consumed with the academic element to stand up, which is kind of a bit stupid because basically you get up on stage and you make people laugh. But how do you write the story? How do you write a routine? How do you know when to land the joke? So none of which I knew. So I read everything. I read, I listened, I listened. In fact, I remembered that as a child, my and Go figure, my parents had a comedy album, and I used to listen to it and I would pick up the needle. And on the album, on the record player, and I would put it down, not in the routine, at the point, the exact point at when the audience laughed, and I would do that again and again and again and again because this is like eight or nine years old. I was fascinated with why did they laugh then? Why not the word before? Why not the word after? I don't even know why because I didn't even think about stand-up. It was like Jimi Hendrix used to listen to guitar riffs, I believe, as a child, just again and again. So it's just, I was just upset. So, but then when I started doing stand-up, I read and I listened to as many comedians as I could and saw as many comedians as I could because I just, I just didn't know why things worked. Um,
0: and you're not one to do things
1: by heart. You no, do total immersion. No, total that's immersion. Your, that's your thing. Totally. Yep. Like I'm in the bush now making trails. Same thing. <laughs> Other people would say you're an idiot. <laughs> why don't you get someone to help you? No, nope, I have to do it. So. Uh, I so I had a bit of an idea of process so then when I was asked to work with these groups of people I I worked out a way a really simple way of getting them to tell a story and then we made it into stand-up so then when storytelling became a thing I was asked to at a couple particularly in Tasmania there was a couple of little fringe festivals and I was asked to um, to do what I do a stand-up show and I said you know what I don't want to do a stand-up show I would like to do a storytelling event. And what I would like to do, given that I had met so many Tasmanians who are not talkers, who don- are not effusive, they don't tell you how they feel. They say, oh, no, I'm right, mate, I'm right, mate. I'm-. They don't do it. So uh, I did a couple of basically events, storytelling workshops, with people who'd never been on stage, who'd never done anything on stage. Never, never. And the people at the festival said, no, we- that's not going to happen. Because people aren't going to turn up and people aren't going to want to tell their story. What happened was extraordinary. Each workshop had ten people. Ten people arrived in them, which they were volunteers who volunteered to come. So they had to volunteer and send me send me their information before what was their story about. We, and we had a theme. One theme was let's say betrayal. The other theme was the funniest thing that ever happened. The most embarrassing, whatever it was. It, each we did. I've done a few of these in the last year. Each story storytelling event. Each person told. The most amazing story. And how that happened was they'd come during the day, uh, they'd come in the morning, and straight away I would ask them three questions. They'd answer those three very, very, very really simple questions, like who was your favourite person when you were growing up, for example, um, and if they said their grandmother, then I would go on to say, okay, well, describe her, and then they'd describe her. They'd say, oh, she was short, well, whatever. So, but then I would push them and say, okay, well, what, what kind of hair did she have? Was it short? Was it long? Was it in a bun? Was it, did she smell? How did she smell? And so what happens, people begin to, when you give them the opening, they start writing. Yes, she always smells of lavender. Or yes, she, blah, blah, blah. So they, you, I help them. All I do is I'm helping them paint the picture. And then we put the pictures together and they get up and do it and suddenly they're doing a stand up comedy thing. And some of the things that came out were, in fact, one story, one woman's story, which I'll tell you quickly, ended up being through the national newspapers because it was so, she'd never, ever told the story. But it so happened that because a couple of the things were quite intense, that things came out like one child, one man, man, he was like, thought of him as a child, but he was a man, big blokey, burly, Tasmanian bloke. He wanted to tell a story about cars. He had a thing about cars. He loved cars. He was car fanatic, car fanatic. And so... I said, what car did you like? What, did you, what was the car when you grew up? What was the first car you remember?" You know, I prod them. Then I say, go away, right? Then I prod them You go away, right? But it's how you prod them. You have to prod them with confidence and you have to prod them in a way to prod their memory. It's not my memory, their memory. And it's basically like stand-up. Stand-up is about surprise. It's about creating a picture. It's about putting the audience in the room. So tell me how your grandmother smelled. I don't care that she wore floral. That's great. But how did you smell? Did you smell of lavender? Did you smell of baking? Did you smell whatever? You know. So and so, this guy, burly guy, broke cars, mad, and went to all the big races, whatever. So I started asking about cars, and I said, "What was the first car?" And he described in detail, like a Ford Cortina or some nineteen seventies car. And, and as he was talking about it, he said that was the first time that this guy raped me in the car. But all of us just. I just didn't do anything. I said, what what happened in the car? And he said, well, this guy had a car and I loved the car and he knew that I loved the car so he would come to my place. And then one day I got in the car and he knew the story he was going to tell but it hadn't come out of his Mm -hmm. mouth yet. And this whole juxtaposition of this love of cars and being taken advantage of because he got in the car with a guy who had the car that he wanted and how he never stopped loving the car but he always remembered that one cut. It was the most incredible story. So that lit that and others. It made me believe that I could do this, that, I, that if you know, I mean, I know I can do stand-up, and, but that's great. And I'm, I'm not being facetious about it. I do, I think it's I've mastered it very well. But it doesn't, it's not, it's making people laugh, but it's not doing anything. I don't have children, I can't make a change, I'm not a doctor, I can't save lives in court, but I can help people find a door out. I don't know what to tell them once they get out, but I can give them the door. I know I can because I've done it again and again. This is a door. If I can get someone to tell that story and have them laugh in the middle of it and see the humour and have agency over that story and actually feel that they are now in control of the narrative, that it doesn't control them, that's why I want to do the work and that's, that's the work that I'm sort of doing. That's what COVID has allowed me to do, to be able to get access because people are very frightened of this sort of work because they think that someone like me who's not a psychologist will make triggers, will trigger people. I do trigger them, but in a good way, not in a bad way. And the reason is because I am the same as them. I see myself in their eyes. It may not be the same trauma, but it's trauma. And they know that as well. That's why they can trust. I mean, one of the stories that came out, this woman turned up, Carol, she's a school teacher in her 40s, gorgeous woman, very together, you know, lovely nature. She's, so I asked them at the beginning, what is your what is your story? And Carol says, well, when I was a kid, I always thought I was adopted, but my parents told me I wasn't adopted. But then I was thinking, and she kept going, but then, and then, but then, and then. She went off on so many different candidates. After about five minutes, I said, Carol, Stop and tell me exactly what is it that you want to say. What is it? Are you adopted? Are you not adopted? Do you think you were adopted? What is the story? Anyway, I said, just tell me the story. I don't want to know your opinion. I don't want to know any, just tell me the story. So she said, okay. <laughs> She's a schoolteacher, so she wanted to make it all sound, come together, But So I said, just tell me the story, and then once I have the story, then we'll be able to work it into a routine. So this is her story briefly. Carol was brought up with a loving family at a farm in Tasmania. She always thought she was different. Why? Because she would look at the, her parents' ears and hands and they were different. And she... For some reason, she was just aware of it. Some kids don't unaware, but she would look at the, she, she, and this took hours to get this out of her, you know, because she'd say they were different. So I'd say, how were they different? How? Their ears were different to my ears. Or, or then she'd spark up and say, oh, I, I, I always wanted to find out who I look like. So when she was a teenager and somebody would say to her, oh, sorry, you might not know how to stop that. Anyway, um, somebody would come to her and say, oh, there's a picture on the front of the Women's Weekly magazine that looks like you. She said, I'd go and buy it so I'd see what I look like. I was, you know, she was obsessed. She would say, I was obsessed with who was I, even though her parents and everybody said she wasn't a doctor and she didn't think and nobody said she was a doctor. Anyway, years go by. She's in her 40s. She spent her whole life feeling like something is missing, something is not right. She gets through her life, she has divorces like all of us do, does whatever, has children, whatever, whatever. Something is never right. Somehow, without going through the details, it comes out that she was indeed adopted. She finds out. So then she, she goes through and finds out who her biological mother was. Her biological mother is still alive. She goes to the place, it's about 200 kilometers from Launceston. She goes to her biological mother, she comes to the house and she says, I am your daughter. This is the birth certificate. The woman says, I don't remember having a daughter. I didn't have a daughter. She says, But you did have a daughter. You're, you know, Mary Higgins. I'm Carol, born on blah, yours, blah, blah. The woman, her mother, her brother had never married. She was a spinster, had been a nurse at the local hospital her whole life. Anyway, Carol says, I am your daughter. The mother says, Okay, well, I never knew I had a daughter, but, you know, they get to know each other. Carol visits her regularly. After about six months, they're looking through a photo album, and Carol recognises one of her mother's friends is also a woman that she knows. She says, oh, that's Judy. I know Judy. And the mother says, oh, yeah, Judy's a friend of mine. A few weeks go by. She meets Judy at a party. Judy says, you know that I'm Mary's biological daughter. Judy says, Judy says, oh, I didn't know she had a daughter, but I knew about the boys. So Carol says, what boys? 20 years before. So Carol is now 43. At the age of 23, two boys, twins, turned up at the biological mother's house and said, we are your sons. To cut a long story short, the mother had been pregnant as a teenager. It makes me cry to think about this, really. She had given birth to triplets and they took them away and they never told her she had triplets. And all her life, Carol knew that there was more and she couldn't prove it until this all came out. And the mother never knew, because this was in the 1950s and the 1960s, and if a lot of single women had, they just they sedated them so much, they didn't know what they had. So a few years go by. Um, the mother had no, no connection with the boys. They just came once and they gave her the information, but then it changed so the, Carol couldn't find them. So a few years go by, the mother dies. Carol buys the mother's house. Moves in and puts a sign with her phone, mobile number in the window in case the boys ever come back. Oh my goodness. How extraordinary is that? How extraordinary. That ca- one story, one, I can't even tell you the others. But the whole, pr- to see Carol justify her existence, but also that happened a lot in Tasmania. You know, so many women came up to her afterwards and said, We know someone or we never knew how mothers were. Babies were taken away from their mothers and the mothers were so sedated they never knew. They would sedate them for three, four days. That's why the mother never knew what she oh. had. So that's why that work is so great. And then the, anyway, Carol ended up, we did a story in the local paper and then the Women's Weekly picked it up. So what I'm hoping is that somewhere, somehow the brothers will read it and they can find each other. It be incredible. Wouldn't that be incredible? Wouldn't that be incredible? Yeah. Rachel,
0: you're not just... A world class comedian. You're a comedian with a conscience. Maybe
1: that's what sets you apart, <laughs> lady. I don't. That's think, it. I don't think it's look. It could be conscience, but I don't think it's conscience. Or a I, calling. You can choose what I like alliterations. Um, you can choose whatever oh, you like. But
0: but see, because because that's really harnessing your extraordinary ability and doing good. It
1: is and that's doing the, good. That's, but why is, are we here? Well, why else are we here? I think so. I think so, but it's never my. It was not, not. It was. It's not my intention doing good. That's not what I think. When I get a group of people in front of me, you have a story, and they come from a place where there is some form of abuse or some form of not having the opportunity to to be the be, make the most of their lives. What I know I have a skill in is I, I have really I have this superpower of getting to the core, and I think it's one because my my ability to be vigilant with my parents and also my own study of my own sort of desire to be good at stand-up to always go to the place that would connect with people so that's what I'm good so let's say for example there was one woman who talked about being violated by her husband so she talked and she wanted to tell that story Fabulous woman. She plays the ukulele. She teaches people ukulele. She's brilliant. She sings. She sang at the end. She got a standing ovation. She was brilliant. But as she was telling the story during the day, so at one point she said, "So he put his hands on my neck." I thought, "Okay, how did it feel?" She said, "Well, his hands on mine." I said, "So how did it feel? Were the fingers thick? Were they thin? Did they push tight? Were they cold? Were they hot?" So that's what I'm good at. I'm just good at pushing, just pushing open other doors so that not only does the audience who is listening to this able to get a picture and it's not always it's not always you know horrible I mean we made that routine actually really funny because in the end she just started talking about his hairy fingers and then she burst out laughing herself and that's what happened on the line I said just keep that in talk about his hairy smelly fingers on the neck and her followers but then if you say I hated his hairy hands all me. People did laugh. They laugh because it is funny. So she immediately has agency over that story. So I don't think of it as doing good. I see it as like a physician cut open the wound, get out the pus. Isn't that terrible metaphor? But that's what it's like. (laughs) It's like opening. The
0: only the only thing I wanna I wanna question because I know you said you've had pushback from clinicians. Yeah. Because you're not psychologically trained formally. Yeah,
1: No. Do you do you fear for their fragility no because at that time when they are in the room with me I'm the mother and I'm more maternal than I ever am I push them and I I push them to an edge but they know I'm going to be there and they also know because the other thing I haven't told you in the midst of this I will reveal stuff about myself if necessary to say I know that feeling I know that how small you felt. I know because I've been there. And I, it's not like I don't share my own stuff, but I share it enough for them to know that they, are, they know they're in safe hands. They know they're in safe hands. I make sure they know they're in safe hands.
0: That's why reciprocal candour is so powerful, isn't it? When you're really sharing. Absolutely. When you're really breaking bread with someone.
1: Yeah, because, because then all the... Um,
0: because all the artifice and the bullshit Correct. flies out the window. That's right. I love it when it's like table. here I am, she, I'm on the
1: table. <laughs> I did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because I think, it, look, one of the things about having experienced a lot of death, and remember death is something which is a word used often in stand-up. I died. I slayed them in the aisles. I killed. You know, death is a language used in stand-up because, it, because there is such a kind of psychic death when you don't get a laugh. It's dead. There's nothing worse than, you, you know, you think you're going to laugh and there's like Nothing. You know, uh, so I think and for me, growing up with parents who'd lost everybody, death was always around. Like when my father died, my mother died, my brother died. It Like I'd been waiting, not that i have been waiting for it to happen, but it was familiar. I've always said to people, death is like a chorus line waiting in the wings ready to come on for me. You know, it's always there. And it is. That's what the Buddhists think. It's, just, it's always there. We're going to die. But it, I think also... When people are at that time, when they're sick, when they're dying, that's when they there is no time for bullshit anymore. And so that I love that place. That it's a, a lot like stand up, death stand up, in that sense that there's nothing to lose now. It's you and the audience and a stage, if you're lucky, and the microphone. Other than and so when you're dying, there is just you and however long you've got and the person in front of you. And I think having seen that a lot lately with girlfriends and family. It sort of seemed to solidify what I'd always thought. What is the point of bullshitting? I'm not saying that you hurt people, but why not go to the truth? If there is a place of truth to go to, why not go to the truth? It is sometimes painful, but it is exactly like lancing a boil. It's going to be painful, but it'll come out. Not one person from any of those workshops has ever had a bad experience. Not one. It's quite incredible. I'm not
0: surprised. I'm not surprised. I know, Ms. Berger, that I'm lucky enough that you've made me cry to the point of not even being able to breathe since I was 18 years old. And I remember coming to my first live Melbourne International Comedy Festival because it coincides with my birthday. And that is like the treat of the year for me. Whenever I'm in Melbourne, that is my joy and that is my blessing. You are a blessing. I am so grateful that you agreed to come on Brave Journeys and share your remarkable
1: story with us. Thank you. So much love to you. Thank you and looking forward right back at you and some laughs hopefully.
0: And I can't wait to see what you do next.
1: Oh, who knows. I could I'm writing a show about being in Tasmania with all the animals. For the different I'm animals. on my
0: way to Burgers Bush oh, you come right now. now. And
1: Amanda Panda, you need to come to Burgers Bush. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, my love. Thank you.
0: It was wonderful to have you join us today. Our next guest's brave journey is just as compelling and you won't want to miss it. Join me by subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. Oh, and if you love the show, please don't forget to rate it and leave a review. I'd like to thank my executive producer, Amanda Rosenberg, my editor, Matt Solon, and a very special thank you to my audio producer, George Weinberg. Ask me any questions or let's chat about the episode on Instagram at Tam Faraday. That's T-A-M-F-A-R-A-D-A-Y. See you next week.